AI is here to stay, right? But if the working class doesn't organize uh, to push back against its expansion into taking away our good paying jobs, then, you know, we're doomed. Outside of that aid list, which makes like hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, people in Hollywood are like on food stamps and they don't have health insurance. I remember asking the creators of the show about the character Louis. I said, well, what's he like? They just shrugged. We don't know. You know, it's up to you. Write what you want. I've been presenting my research on AI um, for the past two years. And when I was kind of pre-chat GPT, um, you often had a, a kind of response. Oh, you know, are these tools really that good? Will they really have any impact on jobs? And also just a lack of understanding of what the technology was. It's 90 degrees, but he's easy to spot. He's the only guy wearing a dark colored, custom fitted sports coat. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. I'm Chris Garlock. On today's show, UPS workers in San Francisco talk to Workweek Radio about their contract issues. On the Green and Red Podcast, summertime rolls, it's too damn hot, and the bosses are ripping us off. Bob and Scott riff and rant on strikes galore. Then... On Labor Radio on KBU FM, Michael is joined by his mother Ruth Bennett to discuss the ongoing WGA strike. On the ILO Future of Work podcast, does AI threaten decent work? And in our final segment, the radical songbook host Michael Funky makes the most of his chance to ask Nike founder Phil Knight about child labor. That's all ahead. On this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, here's the show. This is KPOO San Francisco at 89.5 FM and KPOO.com on the internet. Next is Work Week. This is Work Week with Steve Zeltzer. First, we hear from some Bay Area Teamsters who talk about the struggle of UPS. Their contract expires on August 1st, and many of these part-timers are demanding a $25 an hour as a minimum wage. Neil McDonald, who is a uh, Teamster. I'm a package car driver out of Richmond, California. Um, thank you so much for all being here. Um, as many of you know, on July 5th, negotiations between the Teamsters and UPS broke down. UPS told us that they have nothing more to give. Um, <laughs> now, we know that's a lie. The company uh, spent uh, $5 billion on dividends to Wall Street. They spent $3.5 billion on stock buybacks so that executives and major shareholders could fatten their wallets. We know they have a lot to give, and we're going to get it. We made it perfectly clear that if UPS can't come back to the table and give a living wage uh, to our essential workers and reward us 
for the tens of billions of dollars in profits that we made them during the pandemic, that they will be putting their company on strike. And it's really so great to see you all out here and all the things that uh, that you've been doing over the last few weeks in supporting us. It's the kind of thing that, you know, I have drivers come up to me saying, seeing these signs and ask me about them. And some of them have uh, put them up in their trucks. Uh, we've had community supporters coming out to our practice pickets. And I think that it's really sending the message that we're not alone and what a big deal this fight is. It's the kind of change that's going to have ramifications in our, in our union for years to come, not just because our union leadership um, is willing to build a credible strike threat and fight for our lowest paid members, uh, but also because it's the experience that rank and file Teamsters are having being put into motion, united with the community to win the things that we deserve. For the last few weeks all over the country, UPS Teamsters have been holding practice pickets outside of our hubs, joined by uh, DSA, PSL, Jobs with Justice, our friends and families, even some of our customers have come out. Your efforts are not going unnoticed, like I said. It's one thing to feel cheated as an individual in the workplace. We've all felt it. It sucks. It's another thing to stand together with your coworkers and to stand together with the backing of the community and fight for something. The experience of banding together for something that's right changes you. It cuts through all the noise and the cultural divides that keep us isolated and powerless. Um, and it really can be very empowering. So whatever happens between now and when we have a contract, uh, the contract campaign over the last year has created hundreds if not thousands of new shop floor leaders in our union and given us an experience organizing against the boss. This is something we will continue to build on in the coming years. Militant stewards will be born out of this fight. Solidarity will be born out of this fight. Five years from now, when it's time to negotiate the 2028 contract, we will be many times stronger and many times wiser. When we fight, we, we win. win! When we fight, we, we win! Do you think there should be a united fight of all unions around the issue of in introduction of AI? It has to be a united fight of all unions, right? It's eventually going to affect everybody, right? AI is here to stay, right? But if the working class doesn't organize uh, to push back against its expansion into taking away our good-paying jobs, then, you know, we're doomed. But, again, if we, we have to organize, we have to try and fight it, right? And I believe if we do, we, we will have a good shot at um, preventing it from expanding uh, as quickly as they as they want it to. Welcome to Green and Red, scrappy politics for scrappy people. A regular podcast on radical environmental and anti-capitalist politics. Brought to you by Bob Bazanko and Scott Parkin. Smooth sounds of the Green and Red podcast. I'm your co-host Scott Parkin, uh, here for Scrappy Summer, Scrappy Sunday and Scrappy Summer. And we've talked already covered it on this show previously, but the Writers Guild of America uh, has been on strike since early May. Uh, the um, the uh, theater stage actors actually are about to go, just voted to go on strike. LA hotel workers are going on strike, as well as other hotel workers around Southern California who actually just are terrible wages and have terrible working conditions. So it kind of totally makes sense. And then the sort of like media darling of the strike scene is the uh, is the actors obviously because it's a-list actors out on the picket lines uh, but also because of um because of the sort of um i mean 
clearly she's you know popular actress and actress and the but she's very charismatic as Fran Drescher, who's the president of the Screen Actors Guild and AFTRA. Um, but 160,000 of them went on strike last week. I, I believe it was about a year and a half, two years ago. They actually talked about striketober. Um, lots of people were going out on strike, but it seems now that we're seeing so much more labor action uh, than we have um, in, in previous years. I, I, I'm not sure if this is true. I've heard that uh, people have said that it's, you know, the most people are on strike since the 1940s, maybe at least those people out on strike since <clears throat> the 1970s. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, uh, you know, they're obviously rich, you know, a lot of actors are rich, but they've done a really good job of, of messaging and letting people know, you know, that like outside of that A list, which makes like hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, people in Hollywood are like on food stamps and they don't have health insurance. You know, some of these people make 25, 30,000 a year, these, you know, writers and they don't get residuals. And now with streaming, you know, they're getting shut out of that. So uh, they've done a really good job, I think, of explaining the situation. And, and it's kind of funny to hear uh, Fran Drescher talking about the, the ruling class and the capitalists and things like that. So uh, storming the gates of Versailles. The, yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's, you know, I don't know you know how to much to make of it. But the fact that we're using these these words, this language, uh, you know, it's clearly an improvement. You know, we're talking about capitalism. It's always good. It, it, it's something like 80 or 90 percent of of people in SAG and the Screen Actors Guild, SAG-AFTRA, you know, are actually, uh, they make less than $60,000 a year, which in, in cities like Los Angeles and New York, which is where a lot of them are concentrated, that's not, you can't, that's not a living. That's, that's poverty. Like work, yeah, that's that's working poor. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. poverty there. Yeah, New York, yeah. Or LA. Yeah. And then uh, you, you see how chippy and in uh chicken shit the uh, people are they they cut the trees they trim the trees so they couldn't get shade when they're out picketing <laughs> you know it's it's really interesting i actually saw a stat the other day about the 10 highest paid uh you know studio and entertainment execs in the business and and those people we're talking about people like aria manuel and bob Iger, who who said that the who said that the uh the the sags demands were unrealistic Rupert Murdoch, Lachlan Murdoch. I mean, these people are making hundreds of million hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Uh, Ari Ari Emanuel makes three hundred and fifty million dollars a year. Uh, it's 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 insane. It's unbelievable. And yet, you know, we have you know tens of thousands of people on food stamps and, and living below the poverty who who are who service their industry. Yeah, it's 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 really striking, right? Because movies now pull in billions. You know, you have like James Cameron's movies and Disney stuff and you know Star Marvel, Wars and Marvel movies, Marvel, you know, you know, this we've been in this midst of this new Gilded Age for the last couple of decades. And, you know, it's really sort of playing out now where people are finally organized. And yeah. You see, uh, what's his name? Uh, Mandy Potemkin and uh, what's the guy's name? Ron Perlman. They they sound like a big Bill Haywood out there. I mean, they're throwing it down, <laughs> like making threats and all this shit, you know, so. Well, there was a uh, there was a. Uh, there was an article that went around from a studio exec who said, all we have to do with before the actors announced they were going on strike, but the, this person said, what we have to do with these writers is we just have to wait, wait them out until the fall when they can no longer pay the rent on their apartments, pay the mortgage on their houses, and then we win. Yeah. And Ron Perlman took, took quite, a, uh, quite uh, um, an issue with that and has basically said, I want to find out who said that, and I want to visit their house. <laughs> and then, like, you know, cue images of Ron Perlman setting the curtains on fire with his stogie. 
<laughs> you don't want to mess with Clay Mar Morrow and Hellboy, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's you know uh, we're always going to support labor unions, and hopefully, you know, this is something new. You've been listening to scrappy summertime riffs and rants with the Green and Red podcast, and happy belated Bastille Day. Think globally, guillotine locally. <laughs> and we'll talk to you again real soon. KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM and streaming on the web at kboo.fm. I am your host, Michael Cathcart. Uh, my regular co-host, Elliot Gilland, could not be here uh, for this episode, uh, but luckily we have a wonderful guest lined up uh, for you folks tonight. Uh, but just quickly before we get into that, I uh, would like to give a special uh, thanks and shout out to the Labor Radio Podcast Network for hosting podcasted versions of our show each month. Uh, be sure to check them out at laborradionetwork.org. Uh, and now uh, we are going to be discussing again, as we did last month, the Writers Guild strike. Um, as most listeners are probably aware, the Writers Guild of America, or the WGA, has been on strike since the beginning of May. My guest is a writer, uh, and she has been a writer for nearly 30 years, a television writer, uh, uh, has also written in movies. Um, her name is Ruth Bennett, and she uh, also happens to be my mother. <laughs> so welcome to the show, Ruth. Well, that hasn't been proven, but thank you. I'm right here. <laughs> Glad to be welcome. here. Welcome. <laughs> I appreciate you, you joining. And uh, you, you, know, you are uh, someone who has been in the industry and has seen it from from many sides, but, you know, really specifically from the writing and kind of, you know, in worked through kind of the golden era and the, the heyday of being a television writer. Um, and, you know, so you've seen it at its best and you're now seeing it at, at potentially its worst. And so I think you can pro provide some great insight for us. Um, before we jump into, you know, the, uh, the, the issues that, that are currently at stake for the, the writers, uh, it would be great if you could just provide us some background as to, you know, your experience as a writer and how you got into Hollywood and, and, and the work that you did there. Hmm. Well, being a child of the 60s, I mean, coming to age in the 60s, I just felt if I wanted to do something, I could do it. And I don't know if that's the feeling now, but at one point, I always wanted to be a writer, and at one point I decided, well, sure, I'll just go to Hollywood and become a TV writer. And people looked at me <laughs> like I was crazy, and I was. But I was also very lucky. And uh, I went there. I lived in Boulder, which is uh, was the hippie young people capital at the time. I'm giving my age away. And <laughs> I'm not, uh, like not going to tell the whole story, but I did manage to get a very hungry agent who would do anything to get a young client in the door and he did and gave me a great first credit he said you're going to go in and pitch this brand new show i think it's going to be good and you know it could give you a leg up in your career and he was right and the show was called taxi and <laughs> it was a great show and i remember i wrote one of the first i think it was number four or five and i remember asking the creators of the show well 
because my show was about the uh, uh, character Louis. I said, well, tell me about Louis. What's he, what's he like? They just shrugged. We don't know. You know, <laughs> it's up to you. Write what you want. Build him. <laughs> look, at, yeah. look at the pilot and see what you come up with. And, and <laughs> it was great. And so from there, I did a lot of other shows and um, went on to do my own shows. And it truly was the greatest age of television. And it breaks my heart to see what it's like today. So anyway, I, I did a lot of shows and until good idea or bad, I had a couple of kids. And, <laughs> and I, I have an opinion on that. But yeah. to shows. In fact, my older one, you, in fact, you were in an episode of a show of mine called Duet. And as I remember, you played the role of bad baby. <laughs> a, a role I was familiar with. Yes, a role you were familiar with. And, uh, you know, you actually got paid for that. Wow. And I, you you never went anywhere with it, but that was... Money I have not seen, so... No, we, we saw it, you know. <laughs> I think you made a grand total of like $350, which was not wow. bad. Um, that's, that's a lot in 80s dollars. Yeah. <laughs> and I, you and your brother, I think, remember growing up and coming to sets and having fun there and playing and everything. Um, I mean, you can verify that. I do. Yeah, that absolutely. That can happen now. That can right. happen. You know, when I think of bringing you to the shows and meeting you, you, know, you, everyone playing with you guys and and everything, this is not what's going on now. And it's right. really, really wrong. Because in order to write a great show, you got to feel like you're with people you trust and you trust what they're going to write and you trust that they're going to, you know, tell you if it's not good what you write and or if it's great and we're all there for one reason and it's not the money we're there to write the best show that we can and to make enough money but these i don't know how the, many of these people do so the people are brought in to work out the entire season break the you know break down the um story points and of each show and do everything except write it completely and then that falls to the person whose show it is, uh, not not the studio or anything, but like the person who created the show. So they're doing all the work right. and not getting paid anymore. They're, most of them are making good money. But then these other people who come in and do the really hard work, because we'd be there till three in the morning working on stories. Right. They come in and do that, and then they're gone. And they have no rights, and they make some money, and that's it. And so how were yeah. you invested in a show's quality? I remember as a kid and as a teenager and as an, a young adult rushing home to see a show and knowing everybody I knew who, who was like me and had my taste was going to be doing the same, same thing. There, it's All of that's gone. There's no event. You can watch, watch a show whenever you want. So it's just like the rest of society. It's all been um, breaking, broken apart, you know, mm -hmm. It's it's there's no sense of union, com camaraderie, um, shared experience. You know that stupid old phrase: gather around the water cooler in right. the morning and talk <laughs> about it. And uh, there's there's no gathering. There's a social media, which I think is the weirdest thing to call it, and people will talk, and then it'll be the same old bots coming and trying to sell you something. So that was a huge thing. You had it a little bit when you were growing up. You probably you had it more, but it's not there anymore. There is no shared American experience except maybe 
I, what do people care about anymore that they'll watch all I mean, together? Sports, I don't know. I suppose. Yeah. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, we will be back with you next month. Thank you so much for listening to Labor Radio. I have been Michael Cathcart. Have a great evening. Bye. Welcome back to another ILO Future of Work podcast. I'm Sophie Fisher. Innovations in technology have always affected the world of work, but the issue is back on the news agenda and seems to have taken on a new urgency with the rise of AI or artificial intelligence. In particular, with the launch of ChatGPT last autumn, commentators are divided on the effects this generation of AI could have. Some are predicting it will cost millions of jobs. Others say it could actually support decent work by helping workers and taking over some of the more mundane tasks. Now, I'm being joined today by Virginia Dolgast, Professor of Comparative Employment Relations at Cornell University's School of Industrial and Labor Relations. She has been at the ILO to take part in the Regulating Decent Work Conference, which has covered the effects of AI on decent work. Virginia, thank you for coming. Welcome to the studio. Thank you for having me. Let me start, first of all, by saying, well, AI is not actually new, is it? I mean, we've had it around for decades and it's actually already embedded in a lot of our daily lives. We just don't notice it. So what's so exciting now? Well, that's right. I've thought about that as well, because I've been studying AI for a couple of years now, um, and it has been around for a while. In the workplaces that I've gone into, um, a lot of these tools are, are pretty well established. And of course, as you said, in our daily lives, um, AI is all around us. It's uh, used for in our translating tools or web searches, um, as well as, of course, behind the apps we use to hail taxis. Um, yes. or Analyzing images. Analyzing images. cars, medical right. imagery. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and there have been a lot of books written by academics or in the popular press looking at like the job-destroying effects of automation um, coming from AI or how AI is used in recruitment or algorithmic management kinds of tools. And so, you know, I think there has already been a public discussion, but I think that um, the actual way that these tools could be used and their impacts uh, were relatively abstract before. So the recent Im impact, as you say, is, is connected to this wide accessibility of ChatGPT um, and other tools for, um, for generating images uh, where the public has this kind of tang tangible, tactile experience with these tools. And I say, I've been presenting my research on AI um, for the past two years. And when I was kind of pre-chat GPT, um, you often had a, a kind of response, oh, you know, are these tools really that good? Will they really have any impact on jobs? And also just a lack of understanding of what the technology was. And it's just, I've seen a huge change um, in even recent months when I, when I present some of this research, everybody uh, is kind of much more excited and um, has more of an intuitive sense. And, and now you find yourself working on one of the hottest topics in, in world of work academic research. Um, as I understand it, there are different approaches to looking at how digital tech and AI is changing our world of work. There's economic, the social, and you have a third one, which is called CER, Comparative Employment Relations. So tell us a bit about your approach. So comparative employment relations, um, 
basically, I think what's distinct about that is, um, or the way that I study work and other, other colleagues in my field, is that I think maybe to back up and think about, well, how do economists study these tools, right? Economists um, tend to estimate the, the impacts of AI-based automation on jobs and skills and tasks. Uh, you have a lot of sociologists and legal scholars who have um, done more case study-based work uh, or looked at, at legal um, implications of algorithmic management tools for fairness, for monitoring intensity, these kinds of things. So um, employment relations really uh, has a distinct focus on how these different kinds of AI-based tools are used together in the workplace level, within firms, within industries, um, and also trying to understand then how institutions um, both collective bargaining institutions through unions, but also national institutions, um, legal frameworks together um, are influencing how these tools are adopted, um, as well as being able to, to influence and change um, the impacts of those tools on work and on workers. That was Virginia Dolgast, who is Professor of Comparative Employment Relations at Cornell University in the United States. And for now, let me wish you all goodbye. And please join us again soon for another edition of the ILO's Future of Work podcast. Goodbye. Here's a true story. I wrote it about 15 years ago. It originally ran in the Source Weekly in Bend, Oregon, and in the Northwest Labor Press. First, some updates. The Aloha Knights are now the Corvallis Knights. The big one was a 1997 documentary film produced by Michael Moore. It takes a hard look at greedy corporate moguls who profit from overseas production that has destroyed the jobs of American workers while exploiting low-wage workers around the world. And the numbers at the end are outdated as the rich get richer. I call it just another night at the old ballpark. My wife Catherine and I went to see the Bend Elks baseball game last Saturday night. The Elks play in Bend, Oregon, in a college-level summer wood bat league. That evening, they were playing the Aloha Knights. Aloha is up near Beaverton, Oregon, world headquarters of Nike. Anyway, the Knights took an 8 to nothing lead after four innings. It looked bad for the home team. It was 9-1 to one after six. That's when Catherine tells me that she heard someone say Phil Knight is at the game. It's 90 degrees, but he's easy to spot. He's the only guy wearing a dark-colored, custom-fitted sports coat. He's sitting there under his straw hat, casual as you please. Folks sneak peeks, but they don't approach. He's rich, after all. He's smug, too. Feeling pretty secure out here in the sticks. Phil Knight. Aloha Knights. Duh. No wonder they have such nice uniforms. Meanwhile, the Elks are chipping away. They score one in the sixth, three in the seventh, three more in the eighth, and one in the bottom of the ninth. Tied up. Needless to say, the game is moving slowly with all these runs being scored. Lots of time to think about what one might want to say to a filthy rich guy like Phil Knight, given the opportunity. 
We moved down to some empty seats near the aisle. The Knights score one in the top of the tenth. They are up ten to nine. I move to the second row, about six rows down from where Knight is sitting, with some guys who kind of look like bodyguards, but who knows. I'm figuring as to walk right past me on his way out. Catherine has already come up with the perfect icebreaker opening line, a line that I'll use to get a conversation started. Meanwhile, the Elks come back. They tie the game at 10, and yipes, they score another. Elks win. Knights lose. Bummer for Phil. But wait, it gets worse. Kids are asking him to autograph their Nike gear as he slowly makes his way down the aisle to where I am standing. I stick my hand out as he draws near. Hey! He looks me in the eye. I smile. We shake hands. Loved you in Michael Moore's movie, The Big One. He laughs. Catherine nailed it with that line. He's all mine. I keep a firm grip on his hand. The guys who looked like bodyguards have disappeared. How's the child labor going? I asked. He laughs, but the smile leaves his face. Fine, he says. Fine? Wrong answer. He slips his hand out of my grasp and moves away. I follow along in the now empty first row of seats as he slowly bumps his way along the crowd toward the steps. How is that exploitation going in Southeast Asia? I ask. It's a fair question, I think. He smiles again. Real good, he says. Geez, still the same arrogant jerk Michael Moore met up with in the big one. As the gap between me and Knight grows, I raise my voice a bit. You like getting rich off little kids? Another reasonable question, I thought. People turn to see what the commotion is about. Some look to him to find out, does he, does he like getting rich off little kids? Knight scowls. Is that what you think? He barks back at me. It's what I know. You better study it. I have. You can run in those sweaty Nikes, Phil, but you can't hide. This story was recorded on July 16th, 2023. And this is Michael Funky for The Radical Songbook. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Just a small sample of the amazing programs aired over the last week on nearly 200 Labor Radio and Podcast shows. They're all part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, shows that focus on working people's issues and concerns. 
We've got links to all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them. Use the hashtag laborradiopod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. The Weekly was edited this week by Patrick Dixon. I produced the show, and our social media guru is Mr. Harold Phillips. For the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock urging you to stay active and, of course, stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. See you next week.